0: One of the things on our calendar that I want to remind you of that I am very excited about is next Sunday is April 25th, and we are designated as Commitment Sunday. And we hope you circled that on your calendar and you have an opportunity in, uh, to come back and to be here with us. Uh, we want to celebrate uh, what God is doing in your life and in the life of the church. If you were to think about the goal of Commitment Sunday, because this is new, we, we haven't done this before, the, the goal in my mind is just to create a little heightened intentionality for us to celebrate the commitments in our life and in the life of the church, That's really all we're trying to do. And so uh, we think that intentionality is important. We talked about when God's power is unleashed, it prompts us towards action. And if you think about how God is moving in your life, hopefully he is leading you towards certain commitments, things that you wanna demonstrate in your life. We think he's doing that for us collectively as a church. And so the 25th is a way for us to just be more intentional And having that conversation and celebrate what God is leading us to do. So there's a a lot of great things that we're going to be able to accentuate. You already heard some examples of maybe some ways that you could demonstrate a commitment and and respond with an action towards what God is asking you to do. You talked about the prison ministry that we're launching. Talk about advocating for uh, orphans, engaging with organizations like Buckner. There, There are so many different ways. We already highlighted some of those this morning. Next Sunday, you're going to see demonstrations of those commitments. We're going to have baptism. We're going to have baby dedications. Uh, we're going to have an opportunity to really celebrate those commitments uh, as a community of faith. The message, we'll, we'll make sure that I take some time to kind of share the vision of where we're going collectively as a church. I uh, want to hit on three different things. What does it mean for us to have a shared commitment and being disciples who make disciples, being a people who love justice, and being a place for healing? Those are things we often go back to here at UBC. So I, I plan on uh, unpacking some of that next week. After the service next week, we're gonna have a food truck out on the lawn, an opportunity for us just to fellowship. There's no structured activities. It's just an opportunity for us to commune and break bread together. Uh, if you wanna bring your own food, you can. That'll, that'll help on longer lines at the food truck, but we will have a food truck there for you to, to partake in if that uh, would be something that interests you. And we just encourage you to come and, and celebrate and fellowship and, and celebrate what God's doing in your life and the life of this church. The unique component to next week that we're going to try and see how this goes is we've also created an online survey that is designed to be more intentional for you to reflect on the personal commitments in your own life. We, we built the survey on our key convictions. It's been a while since we've talked about key convictions, but they're on our website. We've referenced them many times in the past. You know, these are the things that uh, we often commit to, that we're going to be gospel-centered, biblically guided, driven by prayer and fasting, discipleship focused. You've heard me walk through these before. So we just have simple questions that help you think through what does my commitment to God's word look like in this season of life? What does my commitment to prayer look like in this season of life? And it's just a way to intentionally engage in that conversation. Uh, Your responses will be just uh, shared with the ministers on staff so that we can know how to pray for you, encourage you, and uh, know maybe where God is leading you. And so it's different I don't know how many of you will find that totally awkward and uncomfortable, and how many of you like, this is great, but we're going to do it, and we'll unleash, or unleash, uh, we will unveil that survey, we're going to unleash it on you next week, and it'll be just one more step for us to be intentional. So I'm very excited about Commitment Sunday, and hope you all are able to engage and participate. And it speaks well to the series that we're going through right now, which is a series that is really designed to move us into that next part of our prayer, to see God's power unleashed in the church. And so when we set the tone for this year saying, this is an opportunity for us to fix our eyes on Jesus, and we wanted to think about what does Jesus have to say to the church, we we gravitated towards his words that are found in the book of Revelation in these letters to the churches. And so that's the series that we started last week. We finished off chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, talking about who's speaking and who's listening. Got a great description of the ascended king of Jesus. He's not the meek and mild earthly Jesus, but this is the Jesus with eyes like blazing fire. And that's the one that's speaking. We, we talked about John finding camaraderie and companionship with the brothers and sisters in Christ through suffering, through the kingdom, and through patient endurance. And so set the tone last week and this week we're going to start digging into the actual letter. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2 and we're going to look to the letter of the church in Ephesus. Now before we read it, let me give you a, a, some, just a little additional groundwork of some things that you're going to find somewhat common over these next several weeks. Uh, every letter has certain elements within it. There's this, there's this pattern that the author follows, that Jesus follows when speaking to the churches. You're going to find who it's addressed to, right, the addressees to the church in Ephesus, uh, who's speaking to the one who holds the stars and walks among the lampstands, that's what we're going to see, some sort of description of Jesus And then a statement of what he knows, a divine knowledge. This is what I know about you. Typically, this leads to some word of an affirmation for the church. But then it follows with the word of concern or a warning, right? Yet I hold this against you. And and with that uh, verdict or that concern, there is then a remedy. Since you are not doing this, here is what I would ask you to do to correct it. And once all those things are discussed, you kind of get this concluding exhortation. Those who have ears, let them hear and then you get a promise of victory for those who overcome, right, in in a certain element of what that promise looks like. So here's how that's going to influence our approach. I want you to listen for those elements when we read it this morning, but what we're going to do is each letter to the church, we're going to break it into two parts. We're going to look at those first five elements that basically take us through the word of affirmation and the word of warning, and then the next week we'll look at the word of promise and exhortation, okay? So we're going to just look at the first six verses today. Verse seven, we'll look at next week. One of the things I want you to know is that these letters, as we prepare to read them, never existed independently. Okay, so it's not like Ephesus got their letter, and Smyrna, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea, and they're like, hey, we should put these all together and add it to Revelation. Like, it always existed together in the context of Revelation. So all the churches read all the letters. And and part of the significance to that is that some scholars would argue that the reason there were seven is because seven is a biblical number and it it speaks to perfection, it speaks to completeness, and that the reason there are seven churches that are listed here in Revelation is that it's really being addressed to the church universal, right? That that it's, it's good for all of us for all time to hear all these different letters. So it's applicable, yes, even for us today, all right? So that being said, let's take a look and see how this letter to the church in Ephesus begins. I'm going to read through verse seven, but we're only going to discuss one through six. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false." You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Okay, here's how we're gonna look at it this morning. We're gonna break it down by looking more intently at Ephesus and the recipients, and then we'll look at this word of affirmation and this word of warning. And, and I really wanna take some time to better understand Ephesus, because when you think about the word of warning, is, is the, the, the word of warning is, you have forsaken your first love right? You, you, you need to go do the things that you did at first. And so one of the ways that we really begin to understand what Jesus is saying here to Ephesus is to understand the origins of the church. What did it look like at first? What did their love look like in the beginning? And so what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the origins of the church and what it really looked like in Ephesus. So, so Ephesus was a, a very prominent city in Asia Minor, okay? It was it was a center of travel, of trade, of commerce. I mean, all these major highways and roads and harbors came in and out of Ephesus. It was, a, it was a very prominent and influential city. But what it was most known for, well, not most known for, but one of its, more than commerce, I guess you should say, and travel, it was really known administratively and politically. It's, it's where the governor of the uh, province of Asia, the Roman governor of the province of Asia would reside. And so it had a very political feel to it. And so one of the things that was common was a consistent worship of the imperial cult. If you know what that means, the imperial cult is referring to the worship of emperors, okay? And so it wasn't uncommon for Roman emperors to uh, claim some level of of deification and temples to be built to honor various emperors. So in Ephesus alone, you had temples that were built for Julius Caesar, Augustus, Hadrian, Domitian. So it it was a common place for imperial worship. But if there was one notable aspect to Ephesus that stood above all the others, it was the temple of Artemis. Artemis was the Greek goddess of fertility in Roman culture known as Diana. And the temple of Artemis was so well known, it was classified as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Uh, Here's what it looks like today. We got a picture of it Today. So these are some of the ruins in Ephesus, which if you've ever been there and you walk amongst the ruins, they're pretty breathtaking. Uh, but clearly, there's a lot that's missing. But there's enough that's there that has allowed historians and archaeologists to go back and kind of reimagine and re-envision what the Temple of Artemis looked like originally. And, and so there are renderings, there are pictures of what people kind of assume it looked like. I, I picked one to share with us this morning. Here's what they think it kind of looked like in the past. It's pretty impressive, right? That, that's what was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. They were known for this temple of Artemis. So imagine thousands of priests and priestesses working and being a part of this temple culture. Now the priestesses were often given to the cultic practice of prostitution. Okay, so it was highly immoral. There was so much money that was exchanged uh, in the hands through idolatry worship and all these different things through the temple. It was also a, a center for banking, and commercialization because so much money flowed through there. There were criminals that would often find the temple of Artemis to be a safe haven. And so um, immorality was rampant. It, it was a center because of their worship of Artemis in this temple. It was a center of sex and money and injustice. In fact, there is this quote from a philosopher named Heraclitus um, who who was an inhabitant of Ephesus. And here's how he described it. He said that the citizens of Ephesus were fit only to be drowned and that the reason he could never laugh or smile was because he lived amidst such terrible uncleanness. That was Ephesus. Okay, so if that's the culture of Ephesus, no wonder that when the gospel takes root there, it's going to come into conflict with that culture of uncleanness, and specifically the temple of Artemis. Okay, so here's, here's what we know. Here's how we know it begins. If you want to follow along, you don't have to. I'm going to paraphrase this, but I'm, I'm referring to Acts 18 through 20, more or less here, okay? Uh, in, in Acts chapter 18, we see that Paul is getting ready to leave Corinth, and he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him on his journey. As, as he begins this next journey, they stop in Ephesus, He goes in, he preaches in the synagogue, and they're like, hey, please stay. This is incredible stuff. He goes, I'd love to, but I can't. And so he leaves, but he leaves behind Priscilla and Aquila. So Priscilla and Aquila stay in Ephesus, and then shortly thereafter, we see in the book of Acts that a man named Apollos emerges on the scene in Ephesus. Apollos is described as one who had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, and he spoke with great fervency, right? So he was, he was well-respected, and he's speaking about Jesus. Priscilla and Aquila apparently hear one of his teachings, his messages, they invite him into their home and they teach him in the way more adequately, right? So they they refined his giftings. So now we know that Apollos eventually moves on and he leaves Ephesus, but I think it's reasonable to assume that the early founders of the church in Ephesus are Priscilla and Aquila, and to a certain extent Paul and Apollos. Okay, so after Apollos is gone, Paul comes back And when he arrives, he goes back to the synagogue, and the scriptures tell us he preaches in the synagogue persuasively about the kingdom of God for three months, and some begin to believe, but many refuse to believe. They become obstinate, and they malign the way is the way it's described. That means to revile, to become hostile, to to speak against the way, right? So they meet immediate opposition. And so Paul withdraws from the synagogue, but he stays there for two years teaching the disciples. And and now here's what happens. Once Paul's there, the power of God is unleashed. Man, there's there's these awesome stories, some of my favorite stories in the Bible where like people are being healed by Paul's handkerchief and his apron. It's still just like a mind-blowing picture uh, for me. And and others are so amazed by this power that they start to invoke the name of Jesus, Paul's God. And there's a story of this this these individuals going out and saying they're trying to cast out demons. In the name of Jesus Christ, Paul's God, come out. And the demon speaks and says, I know Jesus, I've heard of Paul, who are you? And beats the people mercilessly. It's a great story. And then, and then, verse 17, this is what I want to highlight. Chapter 19, verse 17. All that happens, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor, Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Okay, I read that to you because that to me is a tangible description of the first love of the church of Ephesus, right? God's power is being unleashed. And so what's happening, man? They, they hold the name of Jesus in high honor. That's one of the ways that it's described. They publicly confess their wrongdoings. Right? They, they confess his lordship. And then there's tangible repentance. What was the example of repentance here? Those who even practiced sorcery came forward and they burned these scrolls publicly, right? So this wasn't in secret, this wasn't out of fear, this was a public declaration and as a resort, as a result, the word of the Lord began to spread in power. Now, I want you to really grasp the demonstration of loyalty and commitment to Jesus that we just read. Okay? So they gather these scrolls that are about 50,000 drachmas. If you have a footnote in your Bible, like I do, a drachma is defined as having, it's a silver coin that is the equivalent of about one day's worth of wages. Okay? So, so let me just do some math for you. 50,000 drachmas is enough for 136 years worth of wages. That's what they just set fire to. Let me pull that into a contemporary illustration for you and me. If you were to think of an annual salary, like an average annual salary in America, I just Googled it, it's around $31,000. If you took that average salary for 136 years, that's 4.2 million dollars. That's what they just set fire to. So you talk about commitment. You talk about loyalty. You, you talk about a display of, of the importance of Jesus. That repentance publicly put, set fire to something that was of the equivalent value in our day of $4.2 million. You think anybody would notice that? Yeah. In fact, as the story continues, Demetrius sees this. Demetrius is a silversmith. He's somebody that actually makes idols. And he sees what's happening. He says, hey, this guy, Paul, he's, he's causing an uproar, not just in our city, pretty much all of Asia. And, and what he's saying is that these statues made by human hands aren't really God's. Guys, this is bad for business. That's basically what he says. This is a threat to everything we know. Everything that we are, our power, our money, our livelihoods, and not only that, in the process, it's going to discredit Artemis and her majesty, and he stirs up a riot, and the mob mentality ensues, and they begin to chant, great Artemis of the Ephesians, and they gather in a theater, and they begin to to corral some of the followers of the way, and then finally a city clerk stands up and says, y'all, there's a better way to handle this. Right, there's, there's legal proceedings. Y'all go home. And the crowd dissipates and they go home. That's the origins of the church. Right, so not only do you see this incredible display of their love and their loyalty, but you also see that it was met with immediate opposition. So that tells us when God's power is unleashed, so is opposition. When the gospel confronts false idols, more often than not, the loyalist of those false idol, idols are going to retaliate. And so that was the context that the Ephesian church was born. So when Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus, no wonder these affirmations follow, right? I know your deeds. And and I wanna make a sub point on that really quick, uh, that Jesus is calling attention to their deeds, right? A lot of times when we think about faith in following Jesus, we make it highly personal and that it's really just what I believe in my heart. And while there's a lot of truth to that, there are so many reminders that faith has to translate to action. Jesus is calling attention to what they've actually done, to their deeds. And there are very specific deeds that he's highlighting. The first is your hard work. I love this word. Uh, Hard work means toil, labor, to become wearisome, to exhaust oneself, to wear yourself out. Every time this word is mentioned in the scriptures. I love it because it creates this picture in my mind that we are to wear ourselves out for the gospel. We are to exhaust ourselves for Jesus. Are you? Are we? It's a great word because in our culture and in our time period, man, it's real easy to have our response to Jesus be a response based out of convenience and comfort, right? We schedule our faith, and we evaluate how it can be received based upon our conveniences. Are we truly exhausting ourselves for Jesus? Jesus says, I see your hard work. I see that you're exhausting yourself for me. I see your perseverance. Perseverance is another great definition here that I want to share with you. I love the way that it was described uh, in one of my studies. It says, perseverance is a prominent virtue in the sense of courageous endurance, It's distinct from patience because it has active resistance. I like that. Hold on to that. Active resistance. For example, the bearing of pain by the wounded. Got to change pages here. Bearing of pain by the wounded, heroism in the face of bodily chastisement, the firm refusal of bribes. Here's what I really love. True perseverance is not motivated outwardly by public opinion or hope of reward, but inwardly by love of honor. Right, so, so think back to what we'd read about or paraphrased in Acts. When this mob mentality ensues and they begin chanting, Artemis the Great, the great Artemis of the Ephesians, that's the court of public opinion, and the church persevered. They were not motivated by the benefits of coinciding with the court of public opinion. They were motivated by an inward love of honor. They were motivated by a commitment to Jesus. So they persevered in the face of of that opposition and that hostility, right? Perseverance. They tested, right? This is a, this is a great one. And I, what I like to do here is try to bring in verse six a little bit, that reference to uh, they hating, they're hating the practice of the Nicolaitans, uh, which Jesus hated as well. Uh, because we don't really know who the Nicolaitans are or what their practices were. There's a lot of different theories out there. It could be Gnostic teaching, uh, quick review Gnosticism, uh challenged the idea that Jesus was fully human and fully divine, right? If he was fully God, then he wasn't fully human. If he was actually a man, then he wasn't fully God. That was the basic teaching of Gnosticism. It has a lot of troubling implications after that. It was one of the earliest threats of Christianity. So they think maybe they were Gnostic teachers. Um, some of them believe they infused a level of idol worship and prostitution into their practices, that they still worshiped emperors. Uh, there's, there's a lot of different theories no one really knows but, but the point is, and the reason I bring it in here to this idea of testing, is that what Jesus is pointing about about the Ephesian church is you're not tolerating wicked people, you, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, and when people come in claiming to be uh, apostles, you test them and you find them to be false. They were very discerning. And they were very discerning in being able to understand the difference between what was true and what was false and what was good and what was bad. They were very vigilant in that regard. Part of that's because in Acts 20, when when Paul leaves, he calls together the overseers and again paraphrasing, he says, hey, watch out. Wolves will come in among you and try to lead you astray. Right? So be on guard. So the church took those instructions seriously and they were very discerning. What does that look like for us in today's world? Right? Because there's no doubt that That there are so many things that can emerge within the walls of a church, beyond the walls of a church that are designed to lead us astray. That we have to be on constant guard to discern between what is true, what is false, what is good, what is evil. And in today's culture, that becomes increasingly difficult. Does it not? And so what does that look like for you and me? I I would offer at least three basic elements that we have to adhere to. The first is the Word of God, the authority of the Word of God, led and revealed by the Holy Spirit and understood in the context of community. That, that's what I would say. Right, we need to have at least those three things because a lot of times without them, it's very easy for us to fall susceptible to different lies and terrible practices. Right? If you, the minute you diminish the authority of the Word of God, man, you can go whichever way you want to go. If, if you just have the word of God, so many times we've seen people that abuse the teachings of God's word and lead people astray by taking it out of context. So you have to have the Holy Spirit to really guide you. And those things have to be understood in the context of community. We have to be vigilant about this. And, and that's because of a human tendency that we all carry. Um, one, of my, one of my wife's and mine's favorite things to do is once we get the kids down, we just sit down on the couch and we decompress after a busy day, and we watch Netflix or something. And so the shows we choose are very random and very eclectic. Uh, but every once in a while, we get on these documentary kicks. And Jennifer loves documentaries about cults. There it is, right? I don't, I don't know how you feel about that, but it's true. She loves documentaries about cults. And so um, we'll watch these documentaries. Uh, I think we've seen all of them. And without fail, every time we watch one, I will find myself saying, how did they believe that like I, I i'm literally my mind is blown at times at what people will believe and granted that is an extreme example but it reveals this human tendency that sometimes we just want to be told we don't want to think for ourselves it's easier right let's listen to whoever's more charismatic more passionate whatever and i'll just i'll just get in line with what is being told we cannot be those sorts of people we cannot be that kind of church so what's happened in our culture is that when this question of what is true, what is good, what is right, what is wrong comes up, we just shout at each other. And, and we shout and we argue and then we cancel. Right? So if you don't agree, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna cancel your viewpoint by some label or some attack. That's what we find around us. The church can't be that. If we're gonna truly live into this model of the Ephesian church and, and test these things out and be discerning, then we have to be a safe place to have very difficult conversations about what is true, what is false, what is right, what is wrong. And the church needs to be a haven for those difficult conversations, not a place where people just find more of the same. More shouting, more arguing, more division. But if we come together in a spirit of humility, seeking the authority of the Word of God, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, and understood in the context of community, then. And we can live closer in alignment with what the Ephesians did. So these are the things that, that Jesus affirms. There's one more that I'm going to save for the end, but, but here's the concern. Here's the concern that he offers them. Here's what I have against you. You have forsaken your first love. It's a really interesting word of warning. What does he mean by that? So obviously he's not implying that they don't love Jesus anymore. You don't endure and work hard and test if you don't have some love of Jesus. So what is this really referring to? Well, the word forsaken means to forget, to leave, to let go. And first love could also be, yes, first can often, often be a reference to some sort of chronological understanding, but it's also a term for rank and importance. Right? It would be considered the most important. So the way I read this word of warning is essentially what Jesus is saying is that you have forgotten what is most important. You love me, but you've forgotten what is most important. It's, it's to me the threat of drift. Okay, and here's what drift in my, my understanding is how I would classify it for you today. It's very, very few of us, I think, that are here today would say, well, Jesus isn't important to me, right? We would all recognize that Jesus carries importance. Where drift begins to take root is not saying that Jesus is unimportant. It's just that he's no longer the most important. Is he for you? Is he truly the most important thing in your life? More than your career, more than your family, more than your health. Is he the most important thing? See, when when he begins to diminish in importance, you are then susceptible to drift to have diminished loyalty, to have diminished affection, diminished love for him. Drift is very subtle, right? Because, no, I still love him. He's still important. But these other things work their way in that we give greater or equal importance, and it makes us susceptible to drift. Here's here's what happens when we drift. What the devil wants to do when we drift from our commitments to Christ is he just wants to create distance, right? Just some form of distance. So So a lot of times that this begins to look like is you're you're not as committed to his word, right? You just read it less frequently with less uh, commitment, with less regularity, less understanding. You drift in prayer, right? Again, maybe not as consistent, maybe not as fervent, maybe not as intentional, maybe not as uh, intercessory as it should. You begin to drift in the way that you serve, right? Giving other commitments, place and time in your week and in your schedule, right? All these things Slowly begin to drift, and the more and more you drift, the more susceptible you are to finally giving in to that ultimate deceit that he loves to put in front of us. Did God really say, "Here's some fruit," and he tempts? And before you know it, you're given into a lie, you're given into a temptation, and you're on a wayward path, and you don't even realize. It. That's what drift does. It's a legitimate concern. And, and I would tell you that if I were to venture a guess of what is one of the first steps that the devil tries to accomplish to make us more susceptible to drift is detachment from the community. Right The devil's a predator. Bible says it. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You ever watch videos of predators attacking prey? How do prey typically protect themselves? Where do they find strength in the herd? Drink the numbers. And so those predators, they go out, and man, if they can just get one, they can just get them detached, give them alone, then they can devour them. And so I am convinced that one of the first things the devil tries to do to make this possible is get us detached from community. It's been one of my biggest concerns through the whole pandemic. Because when the shutdown took place, detachment from community became normalized and in some ways celebrated. Now, make no mistake, we needed to do it. We, we needed to create virtual connections, and, and we don't want to lose those because we see the significance of it. But what it did in the process was heighten the convenience of engaging with others, right? of, of having limited expectation of really being a part of a community, and it normalized it, and it standardized it and detachment from the community became that much more apparent and possible and drift become a much greater threat. And so we have to be on guard against it because that's the first step. Get them alone, get them isolated, and then we can devour them. All right. so what's the remedy? What's the remedy? Three simple things that he says. Remember, repent, and Do. Right, the NIV translated is consider. Consider the height from which you have fallen. Uh, basically saying, remember how you loved me at first. Remember that first love? Uh, maybe you guys have examples that you can draw upon in your own life. I know when I first fell in love with Jennifer, uh, it was just a constant thinking. I want, to, I want to see her. I hope I like cross her path on campus. Right, all those different things. I just I wanted to be with her. That was kind of the manifestation of it. But here's what I knew in my mind. I remember the day I fell in love with her. I, I remember standing outside of Dell Hall thinking, there's no one else like her. This may not work out for me. She may find somebody. Else. I'm never gonna find anybody else like her. There was no one like her. That's what first love crystallizes. That's why she was no longer a girl. She was the most important girl. That's what love does. And so Jesus is saying, you Remember that? Remember that moment when you held my name in high honor? You confessed me publicly. You set fire to those scrolls publicly because I was the most important thing in your life. Go back there. Remember how important I am. Repent. Repent of those things that have crept in and gotten in the way of this love and this commitment, those things that are choking this out. Do the things you did at first. Follow it up with action remember repent and do and so should be the charge for us when we find ourselves susceptible to that drift forsaking the first love go back to that moment go back to that that true understanding of who jesus is when you fell in love with him at first repent of the things in your life that are choking those things out and do what you did at first that's the remedy And and that leads us to this beautiful picture that I'm going to close with, that final word of affirmation that to me is is a great reminder for us all. He says it in verse 3. You endured for the sake of my name and didn't grow weary. I love that, right? That this endurance and this perseverance that is being demonstrated by the church in Ephesus uh, is for the name of Jesus. When we think about living this life accordingly and and following suit with what jesus and put in front of us here in this church the name of jesus is exalted above all else is it exalted above all else in your life is it exalted above all else in this church when people look in on you when they look in on us do they see your name exalted your career your family your children or they see jesus What is exalted above all else about your life and about this church? Everything we endure, we do for his name and we don't grow weary. This is a really uh, cool and meaningful wordplay that Jesus is using here. And the best way I can explain it, it's the same word that he used for hard work. So the best way I can explain it is essentially what Jesus just said is, hey, I see that you are exhausting yourself without getting exhausted. You're wearing yourself out without growing weary. That's resolve. That's commitment. That's that image of that person that just gets up at the break of dawn and practices and works out and wears himself out and loves every minute of it and does it day after day after day. So should our commitment to Christ be in a similar fashion. We exhaust ourselves for him and never grow weary doing so. As encouraging as that may sound, it is also very difficult to implement. So how do we do it? Love. Simple as that. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. If we remember our love for him, we will exhaust ourselves for him without growing weary fix your eyes on jesus the author and perfecter of faith run the race marked out for you consider him so that you won't grow weary and lose heart so here's what i want you to do i want you to close your eyes this is how we'll conclude i want you to think about that moment where you first fell in love with jesus Maybe it's a moment where you most felt his love. I want you to picture it. Maybe you were young. Maybe you were in your teenage years or in college or adulthood. Picture that moment where you first truly understood the work of his salvation. How he came and he found you in the midst of your failures, in the midst of your confusion in the midst of your waywardness in the midst of pain or hardship whatever it was consider how he found you he pulled you up out of that pit and he became the Lord of your salvation and when that love found you how it crystallized in your mind there is no one like our God let's remember that place today and declare our love for him once more Father in heaven we do love you we do ask that you would help us to commit our lives to you in such a way that brings you the glory you deserve father if there's any part of us that is starting to drift help us to guard against it help us to press into a fierce loyalty to you to hold your name in high honor to confess our need for you to publicly declare a life of repentance that exalts you so that your power will spread greatly in our lives in this church in this community in this world father help us to see the way that you reached in and saved us and help us to cherish that moment and declare that there truly is no one like our God for it's in Jesus precious and holy name we pray amen and amen